Hi everyone, welcome to This is Lasonde, a podcast where we bring you stories from a diverse array of creators working to create positive change in the Lasonde community and beyond. So sit back, relax, be inspired, and learn something new with us. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Jean Chung, an associate professor in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department here at the Lasonde School of Engineering. He tells us about his career journey, how he arrived at York, and the work he does now as a professor. We also hear what inspired him to pursue his research in virtual reality and the fascinating impact virtual reality could soon have in fields like education and medicine. All right, uh, welcome Dr. Jung to the podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks for having me. All right, so I know you work in the EECS department, right? That's correct. So I'm an EECS man myself, and it's one of the things I really like is seeing all the different stories of people and why they chose to go into the EECS department. So I'd like to hear yours. How did you know that working in you know, computer science was the right path for you? So actually, I think of myself more of an applied mathematician. So I'm attracted to the math part of the EECS department. You know, growing up, looking around the world, you know, you see a very chaotic world and I always try to make sense of it. And math, it's a way of providing a very precise language of describing different phenomena, like whether it's inflation, uh, whether, you know, how does a car work, for example. So I was attracted to how math is creating order in a chaotic world. And I kind of followed that path. And if you like math, you kind of naturally draw to EECS. Uh, understanding the world, I think it's a great motivation to why you want to be an engineer in the first exactly. place. So how did, you know, that love and that love of wanting to know how the world works, how did that lead to you? you know, becoming a professor at York. Like, can you take us a bit on your journey? Yeah, so I graduated with my PhD in uh, 2000, which is, you know, two decades ago. And when I finished school, I wanted to do something more hands-on. I've been in academia for a while, publishing papers. So I started working in uh, HP Labs, Hewlett Packard. And back then I was doing research in video streaming and video coding. So what that means is uh, reducing the size of your capture visual data, the video size tends to be very large. You need to reduce the size without degrading the quality. And then once you put it into packets of data, you stream over the internet, which is the lossy at best effort network. You need to uh, organize the data, have a good protocol uh, to react to things happening in the network. So that's video streaming. We'll work on those two topics, video streaming and video coding and XP. Uh, and nowadays, actually, those kind of technologies has become core components in things like Zoom uh, when you're doing video conferencing. And when you watch things on Netflix, for example, so that's a video streaming service. Uh, so that's kind of my starting point, getting into multimedia processing and, uh, and streaming and communication. And I kind of continue that now into 3D topics as well. So the new modalities of imaging, and I've been working on that uh, in York since then. Awesome. So I also have read that you collaborate with industry partners, you know, such as Google and Growers Edge. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about the collaborative research you do there? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, as a professor, I think we shouldn't be uh, operating just a university like an ivory tower. Uh, to be relevant, I think you need to be engaged in with industrial partners and society as a whole. So currently, I uh, have two industrial partners, as you mentioned, there's Google. The works on a multitude of topics. The particular research topic I'm working with Google, it's on 3D point cloud processing. Uh, as I was alluding to earlier, uh, regular imaging will be a, a pixels on a 2D grid. 3D point clouds are points in 3D space that have attributes like color, 
uh, is now processing these uh, 3D point clouds, visual data in 3D space. And you need to do the similar kind of processing in terms of compression, restoration, streaming. Uh, GrowSearch is a financial technology company working on agronomics in Iowa and the United States. What they do is they, they work with farmers uh, within the Corn Belt, for example, they would predict crop yields based on information, big data information like uh, uh, precipitation, uh, sunshine, soil composition, or with a crop yield next year. So using big data analysis, we will try to help them with that their prediction. Sounds amazing. So you talked a little about uh, 3D image processing. I can imagine that that's a very important aspect of virtual reality, right? Yeah. So when you talk about virtual reality, uh, it depends how you define it. The way to look at it is kind of enhancing the dimensionality of 2D imaging, 2D video to another dimension. Uh, so when you look at a video or image, for example, it's static in the sense that the viewpoint doesn't change, right? So no matter how you look at a particular image on your screen, from the left, from the right, it looks exactly the same, which is going to be different in real life. Like in real life, you look at a person from the left, you see one side of its face versus you look from the right, you see the right side of its face. Uh, the fact that you have these viewpoint change, it's a clue to tell you that this is actually something is a 3D object instead of something flat, like a painting, right? So 3D, right? that's right. Perspective change. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, 3D point clouds kind of enables that because you're capturing more than just the color information. You're also, uh, capturing the geometric information of the object. So when you render the image on the screen now, you can actually have these perspective change, uh, as the person moves his head, which would give you a feeling of 3D. You went talking about 3D point clouds because, again, this is a very new subject for me. Would you say there are like 3D points and coordinates on a 3D space that contain information about objects? Yeah, so that's, that's very much correct. So the way they would capture these 3D image, one way of capturing that is to use uh, active sensors. So for example, Microsoft has something called the Connect sensors that actually uh, shoots lasers into the object. And then based on the time of flight, the time that lasers come back to the sensor, they can actually track the distance with respect to the sensor and the object. And as a result, know the distance, right? So when you have each pixel now, before in a 2D image, you have just color information, which is RGB, right? Red, green, and blue. Now, in addition to red, green, and blue, you also have the distance or the depth information of the object with respect to the camera. So given these densely captured uh, 3D points, it's a point in 3D space. Now you can render an image from any perspective you want to enable these perspectives change that I mentioned earlier. So I think that's a good segue to go into your research in virtual reality. You know, as this is a subject I'm quite interested in myself, uh, what kind of research do you do? Like what's the big question or topic that you and your team are trying to answer? Yeah, so as I was mentioning earlier, uh, you know, I started uh, working on research in video compression and streaming uh, when I was in HP Labs. So now we're basically moving the modality from 2D images, uh, 2D video to 3D point clouds, 3D point cloud video. So we're still working on the topic of compression. So we have these large 3D point clouds up to millions of points, each point containing RGB information, color information, as well as attributes like uh, service normals, et cetera. How do you compress it so you can transport it to the receiver? So compression is definitely one topic. Uh, restoration. So just like an image, uh, when you capture an image on your camera, for example, you can suffer for all kinds of degradation. For example, that there could be noise corruption. Uh, it could be low lighting, which would cause you, you know, low light noise. Uh, it could be occlusion, things being occluded, 
It could be a low resolution because you want to uh, see it at a much higher resolution screen. So when you capture an image, you have all kinds of uh, artifacts due to the imperfect capturing uh, mechanism. In 3D point clouds, it's exactly the same. Uh, you would have noise, you would have uh, occlusion, you would have low resolution. So when you need to render a high quality perspective image, you have to do things like denoising, super resolution, uh, all those processes. So those are kind of topics we're working on. All right. So, you know, most people, you know, like myself, like when I think VR, I think of, you know, gaming, like, like Oculus kind of thing. So with the work you're doing in, you know, compression and image restoration, what would you say would be the broader applications that virtual reality could have? You know, maybe not just, you know, gaming. Yeah, so that's a good question, and that's a question that it's often asked when we work on point clouds. What is the the key applications? And that could be a pretty large range of applications. For example, I'm talking to you now on on uh, video conferencing tools like Zoom. Like, imagine you would have an immersive communication system where uh, you put on a headset and you were talking to me as if you're sitting right in front of me. Right? That would certainly enhance uh, the quality of the communication. It's been studied, for example, that actually in communication only you know, less than 50% of what is being communicated is actually verbal. A lot of it is, you know, looking at the person's cue. Are they being nervous? Are they sweating? Are they fidgeting? All those things actually provide a lot of information. So the fact that you can have a much more immersive experience in communication will be a big deal. Uh, that's one, one application, immersive conferencing. Uh, we talk about video streaming. Imagine you have 3D video streaming. So let's say you're watching a soccer match, where right now in the soccer match, your point of view is completely dictated by the director. So, hey, I want to look at this play from this perspective, bring up the ball. Imagine you have a free view point. You can actually look at anywhere in the stadium. You just I can pick, choose. I want to focus on the goalie the entire time. You can do that. So particular defender you want to see the entire time. You can actually do that as well. But you can imagine you have a virtual camera that follow a particular player of interest throughout the entire match. You can actually do that uh, if you have 3D video. Of course, there are other applications such as distant learning. Many people are complaining about uh, during a pandemic, you can only do Zoom. It doesn't feel like in person. Now imagine you can put a headset and you feel like you're actually sitting in the lecture room. Or even remote diagnostic. I know doctors who have to drive hours to diagnose certain patients in the rural area because they don't have enough doctors. Imagine that you can actually remotely diagnose a person to see what illness they are. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's great. Like, it seems like the potential for VR is almost limitless. So where do you see this tech going in the near future? Like maybe in the next, like maybe 10 or 20 years, where, where can you see this going? Yeah. So going back to the topic of education, I think there's a lot more interest now because of the pandemic, how many students are suffering from Zoom education, how they, they're not getting the full experience. Now, imagine we can enhance that. And uh, one way, as I mentioned is, well, can you provide more 3D experience through the internet so that you can actually feel like as you sit in a lecture room. So that's VR. But there's also AR, which is augmented reality. Imagine if you're actually sitting in the lecture room, but you put, nonetheless, put on a goggle where you can actually see circuits or uh, whatever figures the professor is drawing in front of you, and you can choose to spin the object around, look at a different perspective. So that would actually enhance the experience. Even though you, in reality, watching a lecture, you could actually enhance that by putting an extra 3D object in front of you as it's being described. So I think education uh, is definitely one of the, the main thing people can focus on. I did really touch a lot on, on healthcare. This is one thing uh, people have talked about as well. Uh, imagine somebody who have a irrational phobia. Let's say they're scared of heights 
or they're scared of a uh, spider. It's called arachnophobia. Now, imagine you can put on a hat that you can experience spider crawling in front of you, but you know, because you know, it's not real, it's just virtual reality. You can gradually help you overcome that fear that in reality, when you see a spider, you would have less of that fear. So there's actually a lot of discussion of using each virtual reality to overcome these phobias as well. I, I, I could use that. I, I am deathly afraid of heights. <laughs> so that, that sounds exciting to me. So I know you talked about um, you know, VR and AR. So just for the audience, could you describe the difference between VR, virtual reality, and augmented reality? Yeah, so these definitions are somewhat fluid. So I'm just going to go by my definition. Uh, the way I think about it, virtual reality is you creating a reality so that the person uh, feel as if they're in the realistic world. So as I was saying, uh, I'm actually not sitting in front of you, but if I can create an experience through a head-mounted display to make you feel as if you're in this reality, then that would be a virtual reality. Augmented reality would means that you're enhancing the realistic world that you're physically currently occupying. So as I was saying, imagine you are sitting in a lecture room with you know 200 people, but if you put on an enhanced class and you can see in addition 3D objects that are floating in front of you, that would what I would call uh, augmented reality. All right, nice. So I also just want to kind of know because we were talking about all the applications for VR. W was that the part that was calling out to you? Like what, what was calling out to you and made you say, this is what I want to research. Again, actually my, my background is more applied mathematics. So what I am mostly interested in is how do you use mathematical tools to process these large data? Uh, so as you go from 2D imaging, 2D video to three-dimensional data, now you have these 3D points in 3D space, in you know, point clouds, the volume of data has increased exponentially, right? So how do you handle these data efficiently? So you can process and render in real time. Uh, it's the challenge that I find interesting. Uh, so how do I now use existing mathematical tools to this new uh, imaging modality? It's the it's the technical challenge I like to focus on. All right, uh, that's that's actually really interesting. I that was an answer I wasn't really expecting, but no, it's very interesting. Thanks. So let's just say someone has like a student comes up to you and they have a similar passion for using math to process big data or any other passion for VR, what would you say to them? Like, what advice would you give them to become more knowledgeable and involved with virtual reality? So there's a lot of things a student can do to be more involved and more informed. So uh, now with internet, there are a lot of things you can look up. Uh, there are many overview articles you can, you can read in Proceeding of IEEE, for example. Uh, uh, technical magazines like IEEE Signal Processing Magazine, they provide really good overview articles so you can get your hands on them in the beginning. Uh, as a university student at York, you actually have access to many experts around you. So we have grad student, postdocs, professors, of course, uh, you know, I would say, don't be shy, shoot us an email, see us walking in the hallway, you know, ask us questions. We're more than happy to talk to students. We want to get as many people involved as possible. And there are many opportunities to, to be involved as students, some intern, uh, et cetera. So please don't be shy and approach us and ask questions. Obviously you, you've achieved a lot. So what advice would you give somebody who wants to, I guess, follow in your footsteps? So that's a broad and difficult question. So I'll try my best to answer from my perspective. Um, as an engineer, uh, and I suppose as a, uh, applied mathematician, 
I think the most important thing is to be driven by your passion. Um, if you like something, it's a topic that you're dying to solve. Uh, you should follow your passion. Uh, be curious, look around, uh, try to figure things out. If you see a problem uh, that you don't understand, a phenomenon in the society, whether it's inflation, whether it's cryptocurrency, uh, whether it's climate change, um, keep on asking questions, find out more, uh, be active and uh, ask the right people. Don't be driven by money or fame or prestige. That's really secondary. Uh, the economy goes up and down. What's popular topics will come and go. Uh, if you have a passion to solve a problem, a particular field you're interested in, uh, do whatever it takes to, to get, acquire that knowledge, know the right people, be part of the community to solve the, the problems together. Research, it's a team sport. That's the way I explain it to my students. Uh, you can't really do it by yourself. Uh, so if you find the right community to communicate, to work together, as a team, you can solve great things. You can solve good problems. Very insightful. So uh, you said something about research being a team sport. So I'd like to know a little bit more about you know, your team, the research that you do. So how big is your team? So yeah, I tend to be a more hands-on professor. So I, I supervise my students fairly closely. So I do not currently have a large group. I have four grad students, including students who are coming in the fall. I have two postdocs and I have two co-supervised students that I work with uh, other professors as well. Now, I also work with students that have already graduated from my groups who are now actually professors in uh, other places. So I still keep in touch with them. So there are three of them that we still collaborate. Uh, but in general, I know people who are actually at York will be just a handful. And then including students that, are, that I'm co-supervising and my eight students who are still collaborating, you know, less than 10. Which lab do you guys work in? So I run my own lab, which is called the Graph and Image Signal Processing Lab. And I'm the director of the lab, so I take care of my students within the group. Uh, I'm also part of a larger group called Vista, which is called a Vision Science Application, which is a CF Ref funded, it's a Canadian funded uh, large research project at York. This includes many, many professors, uh, 30 plus professors from the Faculty of Engineering, Health, AMPD, and so on. So within Visa, we would, we would talk, we'll collaborate. Uh, it has been very fruitful uh, talking to colleagues there. What would a typical day look like for you and your team in research? Uh, so that's, that's a good question as well. And I think this, uh, the answer would depend on the professor. The way I look at being a research-oriented professor, it's like running a startup, except I'm in, sitting in a university. So I would need to do things like raising funds. So I need to write funding proposals, uh, communicate with the funding agencies. I need to recruit and train students so that my team members can be motivated and productive. So I meet with students and talk about research ideas, review their experiments. I need to publicize my work. So I need to write papers. A lot of my time actually is spent uh, revising publications with students. Uh, I need to sell my work. So I need to give talks at conferences, universities, and companies. Uh, so I need to do all those things as if I'm, I'm in a startup. Uh, of course, on top of that, I need to read. I, I need to keep up with the latest technology. I need to review papers for conferences and, and journals and so on. Yeah, sounds like a lot. Yes, it is. So I imagine within your team, a lot of your members come from diverse backgrounds and diverse areas of how is that beneficial to your work? 
Yeah, I would say that's very important. I think one of the things that people can get trapped in is groupthink, right? If you just gather with people with a similar background, similar technology in education, then you would tend to think one way and then you get stuck. And that's what I try to avoid. And what we try to recruit students, talk to people from different backgrounds, whether they have CS background versus a math background, software engineering. I would talk to different people with different backgrounds, even different cultural backgrounds. So we have students from different universities, uh, different countries, so that because of the diversity of the background, they provide different perspectives so that we can avoid this groupthink shortcoming. Uh, so I would definitely think diversity is very important in composing your research group. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing how you get a couple different people looking at the same thing and how many different perspectives and different approaches you get. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one more thing I would add is that, um, and this is an advice I would get from a more senior advisor many years ago, running a research group is like running a jazz band. People with different skills, maybe somebody's playing a tuba versus somebody's playing uh, a saxophone or a trumpet. You want people with different skill set to come in so they can improvise and interact in real time to create new things, new ideas. At the same time, you don't want the group to be too big. And so you cannot hear what everyone else is saying and interact. So there's a balance between having a critical mass so people can interact and create new ideas and having too big of a group when people are scared to speak up because you don't want to stand out in front of a large group. Uh, so it's more of an art and a science in composing the right size of a group. Yeah, I, I agree. So on a similar note, you know, an important topic to all of us here is you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So, you know, we've talked about, you know, why it's important to have EDI in the fields of science and engineering, you know, get different approaches. So how can someone, like even a student, like someone like me, help spread the goals and outcomes of EDI in the Song community? So thank you for that question. I'm glad you asked about the EDI. So actually I was a member of the Lausanne's EDI subcommittee for the past two years. I've been a benefit so much from participating in the group, uh, from different members, uh, from all the discussions that we have. As a student, if you are passionate about EDI issues, so first of all, we have these monthly uh, EDI subcommittee meetings that you can participate. Uh, we also have just created an internal website. We have all the uh, EDI information, related information. EDI-related events that are published there. So you can look up the website. Uh, there's also a online form you can actually fill out. So your feedback about how we can, as Lasar community, how we can improve EDI-related issues. Uh, please uh, fill in the form and send it to us. We'll be happy to talk to you and communicate with you to see how we can improve uh, EDI-related issues at Lasar. All right, that's great to hear. I did not know that existed. Wow. Yeah, it's been around for a few years now, and yeah, it's been fantastic. I love participating in that group. All right. Well, Dr. Chung, that's all the topics we have for you today. You know, this was a really, really good episode. Thank you for coming on. I, I loved all your answers. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Okay, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Chung as much as I did. His research on virtual reality really inspired me. And from what we've discussed, the implications of this field are even more amazing than I could have imagined, especially in education and healthcare. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of This is Lasagne.